0: We are going to be in Micah. We kick off our Advent series. We're going to be in Micah chapter uh, 5 today. I'm going to give you a little extra time. Some of you might need to go to the table of contents to find the book of Micah. Uh, as Matt gets up here to come and read, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the chairs around you, and I'm going to help you out. We'll be on page 778, 778 for that. Please stand as we always do for the reading of God's word. It's taking me a while, too. Here we go. All right.
1: Micah chapter 5 and verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, And he shall be their peace. And then we're going to go to Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him.
0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. For a time such as this, that we come to celebrate the incarnation, where God became flesh, became a baby and dwelled in a manger. And in Micah, we have this this prophecy, this promise to a nation that's in dire straits. And then we see 700 years later, it's fulfilled in what Matt just read in Matthew chapter 2. The king comes as an innocent infant in a manger. Lord, we pray that this story this story, still carries the weight of the majesty and the implications of you, of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Lord, this morning give us eyes to see and ears to hear the precious story of Jesus, God made flesh in the form of a baby in a manger 2,000 years ago. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Guys, go ahead and have a seat. Uh, Well, I think it's safe to say that we finally crossed over where we can start thinking and talking and preparing for Christmas, right? Usually, I start in June in our pastor's meeting talking about December and Christmas, and Joey's like, Aaron, whoa, dude, it's only June, you know? But, But we've crossed over. We celebrated Thanksgiving on Thursday, and then the darkness of Black Friday came and went, and today... We have our first message of Advent. Advent just means arrival. It means coming. And we're looking at the first Advent, the coming of Christ. I love the Christmas scene. How I many of you guys love Christmas? That's a double hand for me. I mean, I love, love Christmas. And as I said, I start, I start actually thinking about Christmas. Not, not in June. That might be a little, little late. But even when, when my wife comes home, it's probably about October. With She brings something home from the store. What does she bring home from the store that makes me think about Christmas? Anybody? Eggnog. Boom. Yes, Curtis, because I just told you on Thursday. Oh, no. No. Oh, no! Okay. Eggnog. Man, I love me some eggnog. Who loves eggnog in here, right? Eggnog is Christmas, right? And then all of a sudden, you're going to the restaurants and the stores, and you start smelling that pumpkin spice. It's like, oh, yeah, it's coming. Well, I think there's many words that we could use to describe Christmas, and the joy that it brings. But the word I want to focus on this morning or, or have in the far, forefront of your mind is anticipation. Anticipation. We know that anticipation is the expectation that something is going to happen. And along with anticipation comes a number of different other emotions, right? We get joy. We get, joy, uh, we get um, excitement. And, and maybe even some nervousness with the word anticipa- anticipation, um, my kids are are all in their teens and twenties right now, but I think of many of you that have littles, that have little tinies, and the anticipation of of seeing the joy and the happiness on their face as you open up your Christmas your presents on Christmas morning, not not Christmas Eve, Christmas morning. Right? You you, you spend all time thinking about what to what to do to bless your children, and then you look forward to that and their anticipation the night before. Um, So this morning, we are going to look at Israel's anticipation. It's a little different scene for Israel than for us. Uh, They're anticipating the coming of Christ, the coming of this Messiah, this Savior, this ruler we read about in Micah chapter 5. And what we're going to see is this promise. This promise comes through a prophecy. And he focuses on this little insignificant town of Bethlehem. Of Bethlehem. This is where the most significant person Ever bore would come from the savior of the world, and, and not only for Israel, but as we know, for the whole world, for everyone in this room this morning. That's what we're going to focus on this morning. So first a little historical setting of Micah and this promise and this prophecy. Uh, this is after the reign of King Solomon, kind of the pinnacle rule of Israel was under King Solomon. Well, he has passed, and Israel now dives into a deep civil war. Because no leaders emerged to take over. Uh, They split into two kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom, which is is ruled by 10 of the tribes of Israel. We know that there's 12 coming from Genesis that we just finished up. But the northern tribe is made up of 10. And then the southern tribe is made up of two. The two in the southern tribe is called Judah. Judah and Benjamin make up the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom. The setting is probably about 701 B.C. And Assyria, which would be modern-day Iraq, is coming against Israel. It's, it's coming against the northern kingdom and working its way down to the southern kingdom. And its goal is to wipe out Israel, to knock them off the face of the earth. They are bitter enemies. And we see in this, there, there's a several, several reasons why the Lord is, is bringing judgment through the Assyrians to the nation of Israel, because they've been walking in sin, Both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, they have left their first love. They have broken the covenant, and now they are following after their own passions. The kings were not leading the people. The prophets were not proclaiming God's word. And the people were following their own false idols, which produced this life of unrighteousness and wickedness. It was utter chaos and rebellion, hence the civil war between the northern and southern kingdoms, because of their disobedience, the, because of their walking away from the covenant, we know uh, through Scripture that there comes judgment from God. So therefore, God in his righteousness exercises this judgment through this nation, Assyria, to execute justice to their, his people. And this is basically the whole, the whole chapters of verses uh, of, of Micah 1 through 4. It's mainly about judgment, but it also has some promises in there. And this is where we see the graciousness and the compassion of the Lord, the one who will fulfill his covenant, the ones that Israel could not fulfill. He had a plan to rescue them. He had a plan to save them from this judgment. If we look at Micah 4, 6 through 7, then in verse 10, we see these promises come to pass. But look at Micah chapter 4, verses 6. It says this, In that day, this this day of chaos declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted and the lame, I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Now go down to verse 10, wreath and groan, O daughters of Zion, like a woman in labor, For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. Again, this is talking about Assyria, then the next nation Babylon will come against them. But he says this, there you shall be rescued, where the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemy. So here's the promise in this dire time, that God is going to save them. And you know, um, Mark Hotelling, we were talking about suffering at man's school. And Mark Hotelling talked about the promises of God are like anchors in the midst of a storm. Israel is in a massive storm right now. In fact, it's these, these, these countries, once again, totally annihilate them. And they're in a massive storm. And, and, and God gives them an anchor. God gives them a promise to hang their hat on. Mark would say that the ships would come into the harbor and the Navy, and, and when the storms would come, they would drop one anchor if it was a bad storm, so to kind of keep the, the ship settled there and secure so it wouldn't just flop around and cause too much damage. And if it was a really bad storm, they would drop both anchors. Again, Israel is in a massive storm, and they want the Lord wants them to rest in these promises. How about you this morning? Where do you go when the storms of life hit? When chaos all around you is happening, where do you go? What is your anchor? Well, I hope today that Micah chapter 5 is one of those anchors, is one of those promises in which you anchor your life on. So this is the context of Micah chapter 5. Again, it takes place in these circumstances, in the midst of this dark and what would seem hopeless time for Judah and their history, on the brink of extinction, there is a promise. There is an anchor, and there's an anticipation of this great rescuer who would come and save them. That's the context, that's the background. Now let's get to the main point. First, we see the insignificance of Bethlehem in verses 1 and 2. First, we get the bad news in, in verse five, uh, in chapter 5, verse 1. Now, muster your troops, O daughters of troops. Siege is laid against you. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. This is talking about the destructions that's coming from Assyria. They're getting brutally attacked. Again, this is judgment for their rebellion. But then we see the good news. We see the promise in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel. Here is this great promise. Here is this anchor for Israel that God gives his people. We see that Micah focuses on the place of origin for this Savior, for this king, for this ruler to come. And it's not a place that Israel would think of. When they think of where is our Savior going to come, where is our help going to come from, they wouldn't think Bethlehem. Bethlehem, again, was an insignificant, you who are too little to be even named among the clans. So why Bethlehem? And this is why I think why Bethlehem. Bethlehem was chosen as Christ's hometown so that no one could boast and that God would get the glory. That people would see that there is no way this could happen unless God has intervened into human history and put the Savior in this little town. Bethlehem means house of bread. Ephraim means fruitful. And up until this point, it was definitely not a fruitful town. It didn't live up to its name yet. We see that this was an unimportant town, insignificant people, a humble village with humble people and zero prominence. Bethlehem was one of the most was a, a town that was about five miles south of Jerusalem. It was so insignificant that when Joshua um, conquered the land, that in Joshua 15, when he names all the cities around Jerusalem and the land that he conquered, there was 90 of them, 90 cities he named in Joshua 15. Bethlehem was not one of them. It was just a small little ag town out in the middle of nowhere. Yet we know what what great king comes from Bethlehem. Boom, Tina, come on. That's right. It was the birthplace of David. But even David didn't think of Bethlehem as his home. It was Jerusalem. Jerusalem that he thought was his home. It was Jerusalem that had the importance of his heart, that it was the important city. It was Jerusalem where the temple was built. It was Jerusalem where God's presence was in the temple. It was the city of David, Jerusalem. And what we see here is we, we see this trend that, that began in Genesis as we walk through it, all the way through the New Testament, that, that God uses insignificant, humble, obscure places and people to bring about his plan of salvation and redemption. It, it started in Genesis chapter 1 and it continues today. I mean, even think about how the Lord picked David. David was the most unlikely of all people to be picked to be the next king of Israel. Right? He was the youngest of eight, eight boys. He wasn't even around when Samuel came to say, hey, where are your boys? I'm gonna, the next king is coming here. He was out in the field because they're like, oh, David's out in the field. He's the youngest. There's no way he's going to be the one picked. But the Lord picked him. We see insignificant places, insignificant people, yet when they're chosen by God, great things can happen. And it was God's plan to handpick David, a young shepherd boy, to be the greatest king in Israel's history. And not only the greatest king in Israel's history, but the king in which the eternal king, the eternal savior, this ruler would come through. It would become through David. When we fast forward to the New Testament, we look at Luke chapter 2, Matt read Matthew chapter 2, where we see Micah in this prophecy fulfilled. 700 years later, this promise fulfilled that the Savior would come. We see another way that the Lord uses insignificant people in an insignificant place. We have this young couple, Joseph and Mary. Joseph was a carpenter. They lived in Nazareth. Nazareth was about 100 miles north of Bethlehem. And yet God chose this couple, this young couple, to be the parents of the Savior, of the Messiah. Joseph, again, was a handyman. He was a carpenter. He built chairs and tables, and he was, he was not, you know, on the city council. Uh, he was not on the school board. He wasn't in the Rotary Club, right? He was just an everyday guy that lived a simple, basic life that provided for his family, but he was a relative of David. And, and Luke tells us how that How that Savior got to Bethlehem there in Nazareth. And Luke tells us in chapter 2 that there's a decree that comes from Caesar Augustus. That everyone had to go back to their hometown in which they were born. The census was going to be taken. And so Joseph and Mary had to travel. And we know that Mary is very, very pregnant at this time. And there's this brutal journey of 100 100 miles to to get to Bethlehem. But they finally make it. And there what we see is Jesus would be born. Again, in another unlikely place. He'd be born in where? A manger. He was born in, uh, it was like a barn, a cave, so to speak. Because there was no room for him in his inn or the relative's house. So this great ruler, this great savior, who was going to come and save his people, was not from royalty. Was not a warrior family. Did not come from wealth. He didn't even come from Jerusalem the holy city, but he came from a humble young carpenter and his wife from Bethlehem. I love how John Piper sums this up. He says this, God chose a stable so no innkeeper could boast. He chose the comfort of my inn. God chose a feeding trough so that no woodworker could boast. He chose the craft, my craftsmanship of my bed. He chose Bethlehem so no one could boast. The greatness of our city produced this savior. Insignificant town with insignificant people. You see, the deepest meaning of this littleness and this insignificance of Bethlehem is that God does not bestow blessings of the Savior, blessings of salvation on the basis of the greatness of the city or the greatness of our merit, our ability, or what we have achieved. He does not elect cities or people because of their prominence, grandeur, or distinction. He simply does it Because he wants to. When he chooses, he chooses freely for this reason. To glorify his name. So that he will get the glory. In order to magnify the glory of his own mercy and not the glory of our abilities or our accomplishments. And here's the cool thing. He's still doing that today. Not only did he do it with Joseph and Mary. Not only did he do it with Bethlehem. But he's still doing that today with you and me. 1 Corinthians 1, begins like this, or talks about this. It says, the Lord uses the weak and the lonely to shame the proud. He uses me. He uses you to bring about the, his salvation. Weak, lowly people. Just like he did with little David. Just like he did, if you guys remember, when we went through the book of Judges with the, the left-handed disabled man named Ehud. Remember, his right hand was um, But he used Ehud, this disabled man, to, to free Israel just like he did with Rahab the prostitute, just like he did with Peter, and just like he's doing again today with you and me. See, the Lord doesn't look for our abilities. What he looks for is our availability. That's what he looks for. He has the ability to accomplish his purposes, and he looks for his people that are available. Like Isaiah says, here, Lord, send me. So are you available this holiday season to bring the great news of the Savior who came from Bethlehem, born in a manger? Are you available to be used by him this holiday season to see others come to faith in Jesus? Well, this is the insignificance of Bethlehem, which takes us to our second point. The significance of the one from Bethlehem. It's on the second half of of, of, uh, verse 2, verse B. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathath, who are too little to be among the name of the clouds of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, here it is, one who is to be ruler, king in Israel, whose coming forth is from old and from ancient of days. This verse right here is packed with some astonishing meaning and implications. The one who is to be ruler in Israel, who's coming forth from old, from ancient of days. Now, some commentators think that they're just talking about the genealogy of the legacy of King David when it says this ruler is going to come from this this genealogy, this legacy of King David coming from old to ancient of days. But others, and I hold this view as well, it's much deeper than that. It's much bigger than that. Yes, one, he will become as a ruler, as a king. But here, that phrase, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days, Israel, Jewish readers in that day would instantly think of 2 Samuel chapter 7. They would instantly think of Daniel chapter 7. They would instantly think of Isaiah chapter 9 where it talks about this eternal king, this eternal kingdom who would be the ruler. So here, what do we have? We have this. In other words, this ruler, this king will be both human and he will be divine. He will be human and he will be divine. He will come from a baby, and he will come from God the Father. So what we have here is a prophecy about the incarnation of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we have the Christ coming from David, fully human, and at the same time coming from the Ancient of Days, fully divine. This is how Israel would have saw this. This would even perk their anticipation all the more. As they look forward to this Savior to save them out of their plight. And this is what we are celebrating this morning the incarnation of Christ, God becoming flesh. You see, the incarnation is the foundational principle, the greatest miracle, some say, the central miracle asserted by all Christians. It is the bedrock of our faith and our hope, the incarnation of Christ. That God became man and dwelt among us. You see, when we think about Jesus, we don't just think of him as human, and we don't just think of him as God. We think of him as both, together. We know that he, in his humanity, he got hungry. He got thirsty. And we know in his divinity, he fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. We know in his humanity, again, he got thirsty, and we know in his divinity, he turned water into wine. We know that in His humanity, He sailed in a boat. We know in His divinity, He walked on water. We know that He died and was placed in a tomb. And In His divinity, we know on the third day, He rose again from the dead. When we think of Jesus, we think of Him in terms of this, both God and man. I love how <clears throat> Queen Lucy summed it up in the, in the, in the last battle, <clears throat> in the Narnia series. She said this, Yes, in our world too, a stable, this insignificant place, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. That's what we're talking about. The incarnation of Christ, the Savior of the world. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, we see that angel tells Joseph that the Holy Spirit will come upon his wife Mary and she will be with child. And there's something special about this child, that you should name this child Jesus. Why? Because he will save the world. He will save his people from their sins. When I think about the incarnation, my mind immediately goes to Hebrews chapter 2. You don't have to turn there, but Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse verse 14. I'm going to read it, but I want you to hear the massive implications of the incarnation regarding our salvation. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, this is what it says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that would be us, he himself, Jesus, likewise partake, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who fear death would be subject for a lifelong of slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, But he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Jesus had to be made human in every respect for this purpose, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who, who are being tempted? This is an incredible passage on why Jesus, why God had to become man and dwell among us. Why? Because who rebelled in the garden? Was it the were the angels? Did they rebel? No. Was it the animals? Did they rebel? No. Who rebelled? Humanity rebelled. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve rebelled. Therefore, the judgment of God was not on the angels. Doesn't doesn't need to help the angels. Wasn't on the animals. It was on. The people, they're the ones who sinned against God. Therefore, they're the ones on trial who need to make payment or atonement for their sin. So therefore, without the incarnation, without God becoming man, there would be no payment. There would be no justice paid. There would be no propitiation for our sin. That's why God, Jesus, had to become man so that we could be saved. This is the implication of what Micah is prophesying about, that this ruler will be fully God and he will be fully man. This is the significance of the one born in Bethlehem. So the question for us this morning is, do you know this ruler from Bethlehem? Do you know this Savior from Bethlehem? And if you do, not only does he save us, but we see that he still helps you. At the end of that verse in, in Hebrews, it says this, For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. God is still interacting with us on a daily basis. Not only does He save us, but He walks through us and helps us battle temptation. This is the significance of the one who's born in Bethlehem. Now, more detail on this that on, on this ruler, more detail on this ruler brings us to our third point, the shepherd king of Bethlehem. Verses four and five. Verse four says this: "And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of his name, of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth." I want you to. I want, I want to read that again, and I want you to. I want you to kind of close your eyes and picture what is being said here. The image of this great shepherd standing over his flock. Think about this. Get this picture, this image in your head. And he, Jesus, this Messiah, this shepherd, this king, shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. The majesty of the Lord of God, his name. And they shall dwell secure. For now they shall be great on the ends of the earth. This is is who's watching over us. This is the detail we get more. This this great shepherd who's going to shepherd not in his own strength, but the strength that's supplied by the Lord, by Yahweh, by God the Father. This is why I want you to grasp from this. The quality of the flock is in direct proportion to the quality of the shepherding or the shepherd. Uh, The the quality of the flock is in direct proportion to the quality of the shepherd. If the shepherd has mad shepherding skills, right, and and he's taking care of the flock, then the flock is going to be healthy, it's going to be strong, and it's going to be productive. But if the shepherd is lazy, if he's inept, well, the flock will be weak and it'll be vulnerable. It will not be healthy. The quality of the flock is in direct proportion to the quality of the shepherd when reading and I were in Albuquerque. Um, <clears throat> one of the jobs I had after I got done playing was lawn care and cutting turf and and we had um, one of our kind of our clients was this low income uh, apartment complex, and so we would go and cut turf there and as we would go we would see, we would see these dogs just outside left in the elements and you know, you can see their ribs. You can say they're barely fed. You could see sores on them, um, cuts all over their bodies. Um, again, just looked like they were ready to fall over and die, some of them. And, and what, we, what, I, what we see here is the lack of care from the owners produced a sick and weak pet. And we called, uh, you know, the dog services on, dog rescue on a couple of them because these dogs were just, it was just brutal. They weren't being cared for. Therefore, it showed Contrast to that, um, we had English Mastiffs. Um, As you guys know, my mom was allergic to animals, and so we couldn't, growing up, we couldn't have dogs or wouldn't have a cat. So I wasn't even in the picture. Um, We had like you know lizards and hermit crabs, stuff with no hair. So when I I wanted to get a dog, and so we got English Mastiffs because I read this thing about Mastiffs that said this: what the lion is to the cat, the Mastiff is to the dog. And I'm like, that's it. And then of course the movie Sandlot. So uh, we wanted to get that. And so we went to this breeder, and, and, and the breeder's like, man, this is, uh, we breed. These, these, are, these, these dogs come from a, a good line. They have a good legacy. And I want you to show, 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 uh, Samson. And I'm like, I am not prancing around in a suit and tie with some dog, you know? And she says, Aaron, you have a mastiff. You don't prance. I'm like, all right, I'm in, all right? I'll do that. And the cool thing about Samson is he did he did beat at one show uh, a dog that won Westminster Kennel up in New York City, um, so he was a good looking dog right but this but if who 's ever been to a dog show like that? Anyone in here that is some weird there 's some weird people in that culture right i mean there 's some odd people there 's a good movie out uh, I forget the name of it but um, there's some, there's some weird folk in there. And, um, but the thing is, is, is they love their dogs. They love these pets. Uh, they, they love their pets more than they love, I think, their family members That sometimes, right? I mean, they have these dog houses that are like condos, and they're in all the family pictures with their nice little sweaters, right? And their meals cost more than like eating at Sunny, Sunny Lubick Steakhouse. But the owners go through extreme measures to care for these dogs, And some people be like, man, you guys are crazy. Why do you you care so much for these dogs? And again, the quality of the dog is in direct proportion to the quality of the owner. It's not crazy. Think about it. If you were the dog, which dog would you want to be? The one in the apartment complex under that owner, under that ruler, or the one who showed you? You see, what this is promising us is that we are royal sheep. In the flock of the great shepherd king, King Jesus. And because of that, we are secure and we will have peace because the quality of the flock is in direct proportion to the quality of the shepherd. And we have Jesus, the eternal shepherd. Psalm 23 is is the great passage on on shepherding and, and how great and the promises that we have in our shepherd. And I just want to rip through them real quick and see if any of them hit you. See if you need shepherding this morning. Do you need rest this morning? Do you need rest this morning? We're coming to the, the end of the year, 2019, uh, physically, do you need any rest? But not only physically, spiritually. Does your soul need rest? The Lord will give you rest, Psalm 23 says. He's the great shepherd. Do you feel far from the shepherd? Do you feel like an outcast maybe this morning? This shepherd will restore your soul back to the flock. How about guidance? Anyone need any guidance for, for now, for the year 2020? This shepherd will guide you in paths of righteousness. How about companionship? Companionship. This, this, is, well, this is one of the loneliest times when people sit and they really contemplate their life and they see who's around them. And, and a lot of people say, man, I'm, I'm lonely. I don't have anyone around. Is that you this morning? Do you, do you feel lonely? The Lord. This shepherd, Psalm 23, is is with you. How about security? Need security this morning? This shepherd protects you with his rod and his staff. How about provision? Anyone in here need provision for the holiday season? How about joy? The Lord overflows your cup. This shepherd will overflow your cup. How about hope for the future? Surely you will dwell with this shepherd forever. This is Psalm 23. This is our great shepherd. These are the promises that he has promised to do for us. The quality of the flock is in direct proportion to the quality of the shepherd. And because of this, we see in, in the end of verse 4, it says, We shall dwell secure. And in Micah 5 5, it says, And we shall be there peace. Security and peace. What else could we ask for? This is the promise of Micah chapter 5. This is the anticipation as Israel is in this dire straits that they are looking forward to this Savior. And when we get to the New Testament in Matthew chapter 2, everyone, every Jew, every Israelite is looking and knows this prophecy. They know that this Savior, this ruler, this eternal King will come from Bethlehem. In Matthew chapter 2, we see Herod ask this question. Remember, he's freaking out because they hear about this new savior, this ruler. So he freaks out, and he says, where is this Messiah? Where is this Christ? Where is this king to be born? The scribes and the Pharisees tell him where it's to be born, Bethlehem. The wise men know where it's to be born, Bethlehem. By the time we get to John chapter 7, and the people are debating who Jesus is in John chapter 7, it says the Messiah is supposed to come from where? Bethlehem. Everyone knew about Bethlehem. This is why we turn our attention and begin our story of Advent here about Bethlehem. The question to us this morning is, do you know this Savior from Bethlehem? Do you know this shepherd from Bethlehem? Again, we turn our focus as a body, not only this week, but really this month, to kind of Kind of hit the pause button in our lives again we 're coming to the end of two thousand and nineteen and and for for pariah, most of us it's been this right it 's been up and down and up and down and and we just need we need something we need an anchor to help us focus on finishing strong and in the future of two thousand and twenty and what this kicks off in Micah this shepherd king. This incarnation of this Savior, again, He brings us all the greatest gift we could all receive, and it's the gift of salvation. It's the gift of salvation that is the greatest gift that anyone in here could ever receive. How you receive that is you 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 see your need for a Savior, you see your like Israel they 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 saw their need for a Savior, they saw their rebellion. We see our own rebellion against the Lord and His covenant and His promises and we repent of our sin, and we trust what Christ has done for us because only he could make the payment. Only he could be the propitiation for our sins because he was fully God and fully man. I want to end with this gift in the great words of Micah as he ends Micah chapter 7. Turn to Micah chapter 7 and look at verses 18 and 20. And we see that this king that comes from Bethlehem ultimately gives us this great gift. And it says this in verse 18 of chapter seven. Who is God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show the faithfulness to Jacob and the steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this season. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this this king, this eternal king who is fully God and fully man, who came humbly To an insignificant town, to be born in an insignificant place to insignificant people, so that you would get all the glory. And I pray this morning that as we we walk through the next twenty-five days until we celebrate on Christmas Eve the, the culmination of this Advent season, Lord, I pray that this this would kick off in our in our in our hearts and in our souls in the way we focus the rest of our days to the glory of God and the joy of our hearts and what you have accomplished for us through Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.